Welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word, the podcast that empowers you to say fuck being fine. Tired of being stuck in a place where you say everything's fine, when it's really not fine at all? You're not alone. I'm your host, Lori Seitz. I've been there too, and so have my guests. Here's a secret. All it takes is a conscious decision to change and then restructure beliefs so your actions take you in the right direction. That's where Fine is a Four-Letter Word comes in. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories from people who have transformed their lives and businesses and practical tips and takeaways to move you from spinning in place to forward action so you can create a life of joy. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Many of us go through life wondering if we're really living our authentic lives. Are you doing what what you really want to do? Are you being who you really want to be? Even if you've created a great life, been fortunate, and haven't had what you consider an existential crisis, is something just not quite right? Jen Berlingo had what seemed to be a great childhood. As she would discover later, she thought she was happy because early on she embraced being a good girl, a people pleaser, and as a result got a lot of praise from her parents, relatives, and everyone else around her. There was something under the surface, though. Growing up in the South in the 80s and 90s, she was exposed to homophobia, racism, a tight grip on monogamy, pseudo-Christianity, and other harmful sentiments coming from the same people whose love brought her happiness. This caused her to deny something she knew to be true. Jen went through what one might call a normal amount of teenage rebellion, became an adult, started a career, got married, and had a child. She had a happy life, and everything seemed fine. But fine is a four-letter word. As she approached middle age, she achieved a new level of consciousness about herself that led her to ask, wait, what is my core self? Where's my authentic self? She started peeling back the layers of familial, cultural, and social conditioning that had allowed, maybe even required, her to adapt to her environment. See, throughout all of this, Jen knew she was queer. While this proved not to be as devastating to her domestic situation as anticipated, it did end her marriage. And although she continues to have a great friendship with her ex-husband, this acknowledgement did bring on a lot of changes. As part of these changes, Jen took a deep dive into what are known as introjects, the beliefs and values one unconsciously absorbs from the people they love and the society they're raised in. Are your beliefs and values especially the ones you've never questioned, actually a defense mechanism that has shielded you from the risk of being your authentic self? In a moment, when you meet Jen, you will learn a lot more about her journey and why she redefines the idea of a midlife crisis as midlife emergence. Is this the message you need to hear today? Like Jen, it's possible you're rationalizing your life by telling yourself no one gets everything they want. But you can still feel fine with what you have. That shouldn't stop you. And that's why I created the five easy ways to start living the sabbatical life guide. Once you read it, you'll discover a counterintuitive approach to making intentional changes in mindset and lifestyle. Learn how to overcome the fear of being seen as a lazy slacker. 
Find out how to face fears, step out of your comfort zone, and rewire your beliefs. It's only seven pages, so it won't take you very long to get through. The five tactics are simple, but once you follow even one of them, you'll find yourself feeling more peaceful and even courageous. When you're ready to say fuck being fine, then this guide is the place to start. It's time to blaze a new trail and chart a new course. Go to zenrabbit.com right now to download it for free. Now, let's go meet Jen. Believe me when I say you won't regret it. Hello and welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My guest today is Jen Berlingo. Welcome to the show, Jen. Hi. How are you, Lori? I'm doing well. Uh, we were introduced through Yvonne Marchese. And I said it right. Yes, I win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's great. She is. Yvonne was a recent guest on my show, and I've been a guest on her show as well. And so I am grateful just to, yeah for her to have made this introduction. Jen, let's start with the question that I love asking all of my guests, which is, what were the beliefs and values that you were raised with as a child? And how did they affect you as you were growing into an adult? Hmm, that's a big question. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, well, I was born in 1975 in like southeastern Virginia. So in the South during that time, there were, um, I guess in my family and in my surroundings, really just a conservative sort of nature, um, you know, homophobia, racism, um, you know, a tight grip on monogamy and pseudo-Christianity sort of, you know, um, in there, mixed in there. And I guess just the, I was raised in a family that was very loving, very um, hypervigilantly so, I would say, um, and, you know, had a really like on paper, beautiful childhood um, and the climate, I think during that time and, you know, in my home, it was really like about having, um, being a good girl, you know, being a people mm -hmm. pleaser, being um I guess like even when I was little and I talk about this in my book a bit, uh, being an easy baby was prized. And I realized that very early on. And so it was like, um, there's this quote by Bethany Webster about um, having to choose between being empowered and being loved is sort of the dilemma of like mm. a female child growing up in this time. And I, I think I really felt that in the sense of not being able to um, express my needs or when I did express needs, it was like, oh, you're okay. Or, oh, you're being too sensitive, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, like um, they were dismissed. Yeah. Somewhat or, or a piece, yeah. sort of that, like that pat on the back, like, oh, they're there. It's fine. Um, and then just to be like the happy, smiling, performing, you know, daughter. Um, I was quite a perfectionist as a kid. I got straight A's, you know, did all the right things. When I didn't do the right things, I was very good at um, hiding them in terms of, you know, like the, some of the rebellious teenage stuff, you know, um, right. early experimentation, sex, drugs types of things. But I didn't get caught in that. It was like I was very much, um, yeah, very, very much the good girl uh, in a lot of ways and um, had a really good relationship with my family. Yeah. It's surprising to me that, I mean, 1975... I was already mm -hmm. like 
but like that wasn't that long ago and to right. have still have those values be so strong is i don't mm-hmm. know it's just surprising to me I, I mean obviously i was a child then too but yeah it seems like those the, the when we talk about like the racism and the the sexism and the like it's almost like well, wait a second wasn't that like in the 1940s but right. it was actually know, in our it's still in our lifetime and still going on today in some parts very much so yeah even in our so. country I mean, a lot which of we consider ourselves like such a developed country and yet yeah, yeah. <laughs> yet it's still yeah we still have a long way to go even though there you know we have made a lot of progress um i'm hopeful especially looking at the generation coming up i have an almost 17 year old and um you know i really feel like their generation has much I don't know, more values that reflect my own. So I feel like hopeful yeah. that it's changing, but it's slow change. Um, and I'm, and I think it's regional too, in a lot of ways in our country. So um, yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I could go on for a long time about, about the politics of it all. But, um, but yeah, I think like growing up, you know, I really wanted to be, I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be loved and I knew to do that. I needed to sort of play by the rules, not rock the boat, make sure my caregivers were comfortable and appeased. Um, and I feel like I had somewhat of a consciousness about that as a kid. Um, but I was definitely, uh, you know, I talk about like the messages that you get when you're, when you're a child and how uh, they shape you, how they shape, you know, when you're forming your own adult life. Um, and they're called interjects, like in psychology speak, like the messages that kind of become internalized and we start to hear them in our own voice eventually. So it's like, my dad's voice as a perfectionist and my mom's voice, um, you know, as like a caregiver and, and soother, all of that becomes like my own inner dialogue, um, which definitely was formative for me. And I find that in most of my clients who are also recovering good girls and recovering people pleasers in yeah. midlife. Yeah. So that is so interesting because a lot of times we talk, I talk in my programs and we talk on the show about the beliefs that have been wired into you since Mm -hmm. in in, like even before birth those beliefs and you're so in psychology they're called what did you say they were intercept introject introject jeez okay introjects got (laughs) it that's that's the other term right and what you just said about them becoming your own voice yeah that's what i think a lot of us don't like we think it's our own we we came up with it. Like, it's our voice because right. it's been so ingrained for so long that it does become our voice, but it didn't start out as our voice. Right. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, it carves those neuropathways where it's like, this is just the way things are. And this is how I, my self-talk becomes, you know, the parent talk becomes the self-talk and we can't really discern that, especially mm-hmm. as children, that that's even happening and I think we can become conscious of it, you know, later in life. Um, we can start to say, wait, what is my core self? Where is my authentic self? And try to peel back the layers of familial, cultural, social, you know, um, conditioning that have been put on top of us to allow us to adapt to an environment where we had to survive. I mean, it's really yeah. a brilliant survival mechanism. Um and when we had to use it as such, but in adulthood, especially midlife and beyond, it's like, oh, wait, that doesn't actually 
need to protect me anymore. I don't have to, you know, be the people pleaser or try to make everyone else comfortable at my own expense. Like that really isn't going to serve. Um, but it may have served up until now and that's perfectly okay and healthy um, and sometimes needs to be shaken up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And which is why so many people go through what has commonly in the past been referred to as a midlife crisis. I'm not a fan of that term. Me neither, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But how does somebody recognize that one, those beliefs aren't serving them or two, that they can be changed? Yeah, I think it's a process, a slow process sometimes of just really turning an ear inward and listening to your inner call um, and your inner voice and really just seeing like, I think what I find with um, the clients that I've worked with the last couple decades, it's like they come in and it's uh, much like the title of your podcast, everything's fine. Like on the surface, it's fine. I should, I have the life that I prepared for and that I worked really hard to get and I should be happy and I should be, you know, satisfied. Yet there's something in them that's like quaking this like dissatisfaction and then a second arrow of guilt or shame about not being satisfied with an absolutely beautiful existence or life. And then, you know, saying like, well, what is it? What needs to change? And how can I even do that? And it's really, um, really hard because the stakes are pretty high at midlife mm -hmm. when we're settled into careers and mortgages and marriages and children or taking care of elderly parents with all of the things that happen in midlife. Right. And we don't have a lot of roadmaps or cheerleaders that um, are really wanting us to unfurl into our more aligned ways of being in the world. So that's really what I try to do because I went through that myself. I really felt um, like, oh, is this all there is? And like, you know, I was when, when I started out my 40s, which midlife spans um, 40 to 65 in developmental psychology. Um, but there, you know, people can self self-determine sure, what midlife sure. is and it can be a few years before, a few years after. But usually the decade of the 40s coming into it is sort of this um, turning point that shakes up whatever hasn't been um, exposed, whatever has been previously concealed becomes um, seen or is asked to become conscious and seen, which is why I call my work and my book Midlife Emergence instead of Crisis, because emergence is the process of coming into view yeah. after being previously concealed. I love that. And when you just said it, it reminds me of a butterfly. Like mm -hmm. we've yeah, very much been so. in this cocoon and now you're, it's we're emerging out and there's a fight yeah. to do that when in a butterfly, like they have to fight to get out of the cocoon and yeah. it's hard and, and it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Yeah. It's even like, it's like you're the caterpillar for a really long time. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, I mean, and if we apply it to a human lifespan, <laughs> right. And then you go into the cocoon and the caterpillar becomes absolute and complete goo. They decompose entirely, which I feel like is what the midlife emergence crisis right. feels like. It's like, oh, I don't have any structure anymore. It's not even like that caterpillar body is the center of the butterfly. It's just like total goo. And then you remake yourself new. Mm -hmm. And it might be some form that surprises those around you who have known you, loved you, expect you to be a certain way. And then you emerge as the butterfly and you can't actually pull a butterfly out of its cocoon. Like you were saying, they have to fight for it. They have to actually get the strength of the wings themselves to do it. So right. it's a perfect because metaphor. If you, right. if you, if you help a butterfly out of its cocoon, it will die because its wings won't be right. strong enough to help to, to for it to fly. Yeah. 
Exactly. Which is something that a lot of people, you know, everybody who wants to be <clears throat> helpful wants to help you. Like, let me cut you out and help you. But it actually hurts. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. Go on with your story there. <laughs> no, sorry. I just took a sip of water. <laughs> my no throat. joking. Um, yeah. So I think like, I guess I, I feel like the 40s are that liminal space between the first and second act of life. Mm. <clears throat> when we have the opportunity to really consciously architect the way we want to live into our second half. So um, yeah, and for me, that just looked like realizing a lot of things that I knew about myself that I had pushed down in order to have this beautiful life where I was married to a man who is still my best friend, who is amazing. And we had been together since we were 23. Um, and we now, like I said, have an almost 17 year old. Um, and, you know, I had a private practice going. I was living in the Bay Area. Um, I was having, you know, I have great friends, all of this on paper, great. But then like something stirring inside of me. Um, and for me, a big piece of it had to do with my sexuality, having known, having known my whole life that I was queer, but not living um, a visibly queer life and feeling quite invisible in that way. And knowing that that was actually mm -hmm. feeling really toxic for me, the invisibility of my queerness and my true self, because I'm always assumed to, to be heterosexual when I was like out in the world with him. Right. Um, and he knew that too, mm -hmm. it wasn't like a, a secret or anything. But wanting to really have that part of myself come forward more fully and having those yearnings and I realized that that would potentially destroy the life that I had worked really carefully to have. So um, it takes a lot of courage, I think, to really go beyond, you know, what we've been <clears throat> taught is okay and to turn toward the parts of ourselves that might be more subversive and perhaps not as accepted Um there were other changes and pieces for me in terms of location and career shifts and, you know, all sorts of things that happened in that decade, which uh, my clients experience as well. I think it's pretty common to, you know, reevaluate and it's an opportunity more than a crisis. I, I think if we frame it that way. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree with you as far as it being an opportunity. And I, I think, I mean, you say you knew from an early age who you really were, mm -hmm. but you were afraid yeah. to express and live into that person. And right. I find a lot of people I talk to that we know, like we know mm -hmm. it's we know. because it's, yeah. it's who we are at our soul. And right. yet it's about the comp. I don't know. I'm, I'm working right now on the, the whole thing around confidence versus courage and it's not versus but mm. but is it we need more confidence or is it we need more courage or is it the combination mm. of the two you know how they're very tightly woven yeah. together but they're different um they really are yeah and as we get older as we're into our 40s and 50s i think we find more self-confidence which mm -hmm. gives us more courage to right. step into who we really are instead of going yeah. along with what yeah. society tells us we should be or how we should be. Yeah. Do, do you I, think that's yeah, like that was contributing to what you were doing too, as far as having more self-confidence to stand in who you were? I think so. Um, I feel like 
the courage maybe had to come first for me. And I wonder that with people, which is first, right? Like Mm, I, I was, I did it afraid, you know, I don't know that I felt completely ready or confident, but I did know that I, there wasn't a choice to make. It was like, I didn't have a choice, but to be myself and to bring all Mm -hmm. of myself forward. Um, And that required, well, maybe courage and confidence, but I think courage really to, um, you know, first voice it to my then husband to let him know what was happening on the inside first. And then, you know, we did all sorts of therapy and reading and thinking Uh about how are we going to do this? Do we want to open our marriage? Do we want, you know, what's going to happen? And that I did, I did it scared. I think that sometimes we have to just do it scared. And that doesn't mean we're not courageous. I mean, I think sometimes that's a lot of um, what courage is, is doing things afraid and confidence in some way. Absolutely. um, Yeah. I'm glad you just mentioned that because I was going to say it if you didn't, that having courage doesn't mean you're not scared. Right. Yeah. I think even voicing that you're scared is courageous because that's also something that's not socially accepted necessarily. Right. It's like, oh, you're so brave because you did the thing. It's like, oh, you're so scared and you said you were scared or you listen to your inner instinct to not do the thing. That's also courageous because you're listening to your inner voice. Um, So I think that really it just has to do with following, you know, our authentic impulses. And I guess in the way of like um, not being, not holding back from disappointing others um, when the alternative is to disappoint ourselves. And that is a really challenging thing for someone who's been conditioned uh, as a people pleaser or a good girl, um, you know, to actually disappoint the people we might, that we love the most. Um, And, you know, people who might expect us to stay in a certain box or in a certain way. Um, But life is long. And sometimes we have lots of lives to lead. Sometimes we have to be the butterfly. Yes. Yes. And you just mentioned, um, well, so in your book, which um, remind my listeners or not remind them, tell them in the first place, what's the name of your book? Sure. My book is called Midlife Emergence, Free Your Inner Fire. Um, And it's a teaching memoir, which is part memoir and part like personal growth. And um, so it's really my story of emergence in the decade of my 40s and facing a lot of these things. But I identify like 13 different common midlife themes. And at the end of each chapter, um, I invite the reader into their own um, self-inquiry work around that theme through journaling, through art, through personal ritual and ceremony, different ways of contacting what that inner voice is saying to you. So um, everyone's story is different. It's not necessarily a book for people coming out later in life, although a lot of people um, I work with or who are drawn to the book have that story, but a lot don't. A lot of them are just contemplating maybe a career shift or something in their relationship or in their friendships or whatever it might be for you. Um, it's applicable there in the in the prompts, but it yeah. goes through like the story of my my own midlife. Yeah. And, and I've been reading through it and uh, it, it is the exercises are great. The story. I mean, people are always interested in other people's stories. And yeah, so, I do think memoir is like naturally instructive in some way. Yeah. You don't need the, the prompts part. But um, I wanted to add that because I feel like with my background as a therapist and coach and art therapist that it really um, helps to invite the reader into their own work. It does. And when somebody's reading 
they're seeing what like, oh, okay, Jen did this, Jen did that. But how, how did she do it? Like if I wanted to do it, Mm -hmm. how, how did you do it? And that's often a question I ask my guests is like, okay, so you went through this experience where things were fine, but they weren't fine. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden now you're over here on this other path, but there's Mm -hmm. a disconnect, like what happened in between there? And so by providing those exercises, you give people the tools to move move themselves from one place to another. I wanted to go back to, though, in your book, you talk about, um, we were just talking about the uh, disappointing others and how that was yeah. something that was, and you mentioned it in the beginning, too, about uh, being conditioned to not disappoint mm-hmm. others and being raised to as um, that self-sacrifice was the whole point of life, basically. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, I come from a long line of martyrs in a way, you know, just women who are giving of themselves and really um, prized for it. Like, oh, she's so great. She does everything for everyone else and always, you know, bake casseroles for people who are sick, like all of the giving, giving, giving until they're empty. And I, I know that that's a virtue um, in my family and, and probably many others around that generation. Um, yeah, so it does feel there's just a phrase sometimes in my head when I hear people say like must be nice like Mm. is something I love to hate because it feels like that energy sort of when I um in my late 20s went back to graduate school to become a therapist and it was like I was doing a lot of personal growth work and you know I was in therapy myself um as a requirement of the program and a requirement for me as a human because I feel like I love (laughs) therapy so much out of it um and you know, anytime I would talk about any sort of self-care type of thing, um, the feeling that I would get, and it maybe wasn't in those words, was like, oh, it must be nice that you're able to do all of that. And it's like, oh, no, it's um, it's not a selfish thing. It's a way of bringing, being, coming responsible for my own, you know, yeah. life. And, and it's not a language that um, my family spoke necessarily or speaks. Um, yeah. And I think it's like to disappoint others you know and really to try to come to terms with satisfying yourself um you the ground drops out in a way of like the safety and security that we've developed and that we've like tried to maintain in relationships we're risking that and so it can be pretty scary but um uh, there's another well eric erickson is a psychologist from the 50s and he talks about the struggle in midlife um every like developmental stage of life has this challenge and the challenge of midlife he says is stagnation versus generativity Mm -hmm. which is really where we're reevaluating to make sure we're making the type of impact we want to make and so sometimes we can feel stagnant when we're clinging to the habits that have helped us feel safe and secure and stable and that familiarity feels super nice to our nervous systems you know yes um but when I was researching my book and I interviewed over a hundred women about this, they talked about how there was more seduction into like the mystery and a yearning for something more and something more generative and something that would be growth producing and help them evolve. Then there was the um, clinging toward, you know, the, what was safe and secure. So there seems to be more of a urge toward that generativity or like a natural progression into wanting to continue to expand and grow. Um, and so that risk uh, is worth it a lot of times. And it doesn't mean it has to be like this huge volcanic eruption. 
um, of, you know, blowing up your whole beautiful life, but it can be like small one degree turns toward what feels more authentic and what feels more growth producing. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. It doesn't have to be a seismic shift. It could be, it might be, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be even that one degree. Like I've heard, uh, you know, I'm not a pilot, but planes that are even one degree off from flying on their path are going to end up somewhere completely different than where they're supposed to be from just one degree. And so that same thing could happen is just a small shift could make a major, have a major impact on someone's life. Mm, Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great metaphor for that. And you mentioned too the uh, that calling to mm-hmm. you know I I believe that that is your soul like crying out for like hey you're here to live bigger <laughs> than this or differently more different more differently more differently than this you're here to do <laughs> yes. bigger than where than what you have done so far. Right. And, and pay right. attention to this. Pay attention to this. I think, though, a lot of times people, like you said, they're afraid because it's uncomfortable and it's different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's that saying? Um, nobody likes change other than a baby with a wet diaper. And, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're the, the only ones who like change. really uncomfortable. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. But change at, is really uncomfortable. And that's all we have. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. There is nothing. Yeah. Life is change. And it's yes. more uncomfortable in the end to not change. Because right. and, and so true. one of the things I, I thought about when I was making some major changes and, and have been still like I still, you know, I'm out here living nomad life. So <laughs> it's a big yeah, change. That's awesome. But asking yourself the question when I'm 80 or when I'm on my deathbed or whatever, Will I regret not having done this thing? And what is the cost of not doing it? I fully live that way. I feel like there's an urgency um, sometimes around this point of life because we realize our mortality more so, you know, than we did, whether it's health issues or caring for aging parents or whatever that is. Um, Just looking at, okay, what? what is my life about? And like, I have to do that now. This is my one life I get to live and remember. And I want to wring it dry of all of the juiciness that it has to offer. And how am I not doing that? And I felt that burning so hot. Um, and I still do. Uh, it's not like that goes away, but I feel like there are waves of it. And it came up really strongly for me in my early forties of, um, yeah, what, what am I not doing? What am I not living that I really would have wanted to, um, what paths, you know, have I not taken that I may have regretted not taking or that I would regret not taking going forward? Um, and I feel like some of some of those things, when we identify them, um, can be like a way to listen to the inner voice. Like when we hear that in ourselves and another thing that I think helps us know it's a soul calling and this seems weird at first, but envy I feel like when we feel envy, when we're watching someone else's life um, play out in a way, or we hear something great about someone like, oh, you know, that person got some award or got some job or whatever it might be, or got married or, you know, um, ah, like that feeling of envy that comes up. It's like, not like a jealousy, you don't want them to have it, but like, I want that for myself. And so that there's like a 
bitter taste to that, I feel like that is such a gift because it really points us toward true desire. It's like, there's something about that that I would like to have in this life for myself. And um, yeah, I feel like those things can be compasses, um, really easy kind of compasses for those who may not be as I don't know, used to really listening internally or they're like, what does that even mean? <laughs> um, I think that some yes. of those ways are easy to grasp. Yes, that's so good. That is such a good point of because we're often taught, again, like envy is a, a quote unquote bad thing. And I love how it could mm-hmm. be a signpost for you to pay attention to. Hey, I, yeah, because if, it, if it's like being aware of um, like feelings or things that come up for you that are, they don't come up for everybody. Like what you are envious right. of, I might not be, but right. we don't realize that. We're like, well, is wouldn't everybody be envious of that? Of course. Like, no, that's, right, but that's no. a unique yeah. thing to you. Yeah, it is. It's really yeah. personal. And paying and attention really to it. Like, like, okay. Yeah. And I think it can really point us toward who we truly want to be or who we're becoming. Um, And in the last chapter of my book, I have an invitation um, and a link to an audio. If you have the audio book, it's actually in there. But um, in the other versions, um, you can link to it. There is a a future self-visualization exercise where it's kind of yourself projected 20 years into the future talking to you now. And it's just um, a brief meditation, basically, and then some writing prompts after it. And I feel like I've done that repeatedly over the last decade or so. I guess it's been about a decade now that I've been doing that exercise in different ways. And it is such a way of, um, for me, it's like my future self is sort of this muse who I am living into. I look at, I look to the visual of, of that person and think each day when I'm making even little decisions, like, would she wear this? Would she, where would she want to go to eat? You know, it's sort of like courting that one of you who is to be um, in like the most ideal or not necessarily ideal, but like the version that you really hope for. Um, and it really mm-hmm. makes it tangible. Um, and I feel like that also helps with that thing we were just talking about of the regrets or not regrets. Like how, how will you become her? You know? Um, so I think that that's yeah. also a really um, great exercise to do. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you're talking about future self. Um, mm-hmm. because I, I think well, we could go down a whole different rabbit hole on this conversation about <laughs> people taking we care can. of themselves today so that their future self, like if, to benefit their future self. And, and so many people don't even think about that. They think about what can I do today that will bring me immediate joy, immediate satisfaction. Right. And, you know, screw yeah. future me. They're, I'll, she'll <laughs> deal with herself when <laughs> she gets there. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Right, right. But it could be as simple right. as making your bed so that future you tonight can get into a nicely mm-hmm. made bed with clean sheets. You know, it, it doesn't yeah. have to be 10 years down the road because that's too far to think sometimes. Right, exactly. And doing kind things for that one of you, you know, to come. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So, um, where where are we going with this now? I, there were other. Uh, I was I was going to mention the thing about regrets because you mentioned the regrets, and I was just uh, like I was looking away as I was talking because I wanted to look up the name of the guy who wrote the book about regrets uh, that I love. Hmm. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? 
he was i don't uh, i don't think all right hang on i'm gonna look him up because he's um it's not top top five regrets of the dying it's uh uh, the power of regret right dan Hmm. pink love dan pink are you familiar okay i'm not no oh he's written a whole bunch of books um but the, his, I think it's his newest, it came out a couple of years ago, called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. And he talked in that book about how having regrets is not necessarily a bad thing. Like people think, I want to live without regrets. Well, regrets, like what you were talking about earlier, help point you in the direction that you would like to go. Like if you regret right. not doing something in the past and you have the opportunity to do it now, or you take actions um, based on regrets you had in the past so that moving forward, future you doesn't have a regret. Absolutely. Yes. I think, um, I think about that a lot with paths not taken, you know, and then Mm -hmm. how we have the opportunity to maybe take them now. And I write about this in my book and it's kind of silly, but I don't know if you remember that movie slide. I was just going to say that. I was just going to bring that up because I remember reading that in the book and I'm like, oh my God, I talk about that movie all the time. I love that movie. Yeah, me too. I don't know how it was so impactful, but it was like, it was like a kind of random time. It was kind of a, um, like, like not, it wasn't a very popular movie. I don't think a lot of people knew about it or saw it. Yeah. I mean, they had Gwyneth Paltrow, but early in her career and it was like, yeah, I watched it as I was, well, it kind of prompted, a, in a way, in a small way, a breakup that I was about to go through after college. So it was like, I watched it and saw in the movie, basically, you see her life um, play out in one way when she catches her partner cheating. And then, you know, she kind of empowers herself and becomes this like, she does a whole lot of things like in her career and everything. And then the other where she just remains blind to the fact that there was infidelity and uh, lives a more meek life that where she has a lot of doubts and isn't able to you know make these sort of major moves in her and her, the rest of the areas of her life and so I remember watching that and feeling um yeah just feeling like it was cool to see the parallel lives and how they would play out and wondering about my own you know if I were to stay in this relationship or not or these sorts of things and it, it felt um yeah I, I think about it a lot I think about that concept of what's it me in a parallel universe doing and do I want to be doing that and hop over right 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 because right again we could go on for a whole other conversation about parallel universes because I actually believe (laughs) that there are parallel universes that that we in a different life um choice or life path are living somewhere Mm -hmm. else (laughs) yeah and we can call that in like if it is something where you think you know Oh gosh, in a parallel universe, you know, um, like I was thought, like, oh, I'm a queer woman who's, and I'm like, oh, okay, actually, I, I want that. <laughs> like, this is something that I, you know, I haven't been living or hadn't been living. Um, yeah. And just really trying to, it, it kind of hones in on like the regret, like you were saying, like using it as a tool for, you know, future planning or manifesting. Yeah. Inspiration. Yeah. Inspiration. That's a better word than manifesting for sure. <laughs> well, they go hand in hand. So. Yeah. 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 Awesome. All right. So one, I highly recommend that if you're listening to this episode, that you hop over to where, Jen, where does somebody go to get your book? Because they definitely are going to want to hear the rest um, of your story. Thank you. I My book is available anywhere you buy books online, um, Amazon and elsewhere. 
Um, it can you can ask your independent bookstores to order it as well. It's available that way. Um, but yeah, it's in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Um, and you can find out more about my book and my offerings. Everything is on my website, which is just my name, jenberlingo.com, J-E-N-B-E-R-L-I-N-G-O.com. Um, yeah. And you can find me all over the place, actually, <laughs> too. Like I, I write weekly on Substack. Um, I have a Substack called Prism where if you want more up-to-date writing or you read my book and you want more on these sorts of topics, um, I'm on Substack there. And um, I offer one-to-one midlife coaching and I offer a lot of self-guided um, or guided and self-paced online programs. Um, and I have applications open for um, a 12-week midlife emergence group guidance program that I run. Um, I've run annually for the past few years and it's going to happen once it's full sometime in 2024. Um, so applications are open for that as well. Okay. Um, and I'm all over social media. Instagram's yeah. my favorite. It's just my name, Jennifer Lingo. Okay, cool. <laughs> I will put uh, links to all of that in the show notes. And as you were talking, I was like, oh, but wait, we didn't cover the one one other thing, which is also why people are going to need to go get your book, is the thing about the astrology and the North nodes oh, and the yeah. South nodes. And I just found that really fascinating. I'm just, we're not going to go into it all, but, but, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm semi into astrology. I don't know a lot about it, but mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by it. And I had never heard of this whole thing of North nodes and South nodes and how they also can point you in the direction that, that, uh, maybe makes sense for your life at this point in, in time. Yes. Yeah. I'm not an astrologer either, but I consult with one annually on my birthday. And um, it's I've consulted with the same same one and I write about him in my book. He's great. Um, but he's taught me quite a bit and I've, I've studied on my own bits and pieces since I was like 11. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't do astrology. Um, but it's really, yeah, it's really great. Like astrologers um, actually call the midlife crisis the Uranus opposition. And so there is like a planetary thing around age 42. And so if you're into that sort of thing, I talk about that a little bit in my book. I have one chapter that's dedicated to some of this and some of the activities and it has to do with the lunar nodes that you're talking about, the north and south node, um, your karmic past, and then like your highest vision would be your north node of what you are capable of growing into, but there's free will, of course, and doing that. So yeah, um, yeah, check out that part. It too. was <laughs> it was fascinating because I went and did like you t- you you talk about you mentioned how to find out what they are. Yeah, and so I went and did it, right. and I was like, oh, what? This is this makes yeah. sense. <laughs> totally <laughs> right. So cool. It does for me too. Yeah, he did that with me, and I was like, oh, this explains a whole right, lot. Right, right. And I had exactly I hadn't known that. Yeah, and yeah, I love doing that with clients that's, as well too. So, so cool. All right, um, be- that's a fun part. Before we go, I got to ask you the last question that everybody gets, and that is, what's your hype song when you need an extra boost of energy? It is. When you told me that you were going to ask this, and I've heard your podcast before, I'm like, oh no, I have entire playlists. Yes, for this. I know. So, so do I, but to narrow it down. But um, yeah, the one that I'll say today is Ape Shit by the Carters. The Carters are Beyonce and Jay Z. Um, that's their last name. And that it's um, it's on the album that they did together. And yeah, it has a four letter word in it as well. But well, um, I don't. It's a great. It's a great pump up song. <laughs> I, now I have to go listen to it. Like, I feel like I probably heard it, but maybe didn't know the name of it. So, yeah, it's called Ape Shit. <laughs> yeah, all right. Ape Shit. I got to go look that up right now. 
and that's awesome and have a listen jen thank you so much for being my guest unfine is a four-letter word yeah thank you so much for having me laurie this has been fun Jen's find is a four-letter word moment is something people have gone through since the beginning of time. It's just become more normalized to say it out loud in today's social climate than it was even when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. But it leads to several other things. Here are my top takeaways. Number one, many people go through a sexual bucket list of things they try once or twice before they settle down. I don't like the phrase settle down because it implies that you go through a wild phase to get it out of your system, that you know it's wrong to do in the first place and you intend to ultimately do what someone else says is the right thing. Settling down thus becomes a form of people pleasing. Number two, you don't have to be a people pleaser. When you make everyone else comfortable at your own expense, in the end, that's a disservice to not only you, but the other people as well. You can be a good person who makes every effort to do right by others while still being your authentic self. Jen happily discovered that she can still have a great friendship with her ex-husband, even though her self-discovery made it unfeasible to stay married. Number three, caterpillars don't just grow wings and become butterflies. The caterpillar undergoes a metamorphosis and essentially turns into goo, before transforming into an entirely new creature. If you help the butterfly out of its cocoon, its wings will not develop and it will die. To have the life you truly want, often you have to disrupt or even destroy the old one completely, on your own terms, without intervention from others. Number four, courage does not mean absence of fear. We hold ourselves back by thinking we have to be brave to become our authentic selves, allowing fear to keep us stuck where we are. But even with fear present, we have the power to metamorphosize. When Jen found the courage to become her authentic self, she did it scared. And that's okay. Number five, regret, for lack of a better word, is good. The idea of having no regrets is a fallacy. One of my favorite books, The Power of Regret by Dan Pink, teaches that if you regret not doing something before, that motivates you to do it now. Also, you can take actions based on your past regrets so you won't have them in the future. Allow your regrets to help you create your authentic life. Thanks for listening to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow and share it with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform to help others discover it too. You can find links to my socials on my website, zenrabbit.com. And before you go, take a moment to reflect on what you're grateful for today. Remember, you have the power to create a life you love, and I'm proud of you. Thanks for joining me. Take care.